So welcome to episode one of the Fairly Lame podcast. And so the objective of this is that if you're reading too much conventional media, it can be pretty depressing, especially when you're looking at the environment and conservation sections. So each week we'll try to pick out uh, four, five, six feel-good conservation stories, success stories to keep the hope alive. Not to cover up all the horrible things that are doing, because that obviously needs attention, but there is a lot of that stuff, and it can get pretty depressing, pretty overwhelming. And we're not going to be going too deep into topics, like we're not going to get balls deep into how solar panels work or anything like that. Um, very surface level talking points, um, yeah, keep it nice and light. And so pretty much, for example, what we'll be talking about this week includes the success of wildlife crossing structures up in northern New South Wales. Rex Airlines, a regional uh, airline company, they're trialling electric planes pretty soon. We also have a what the fuck moment. So pretty much what this is, each week, something that just fuck, makes you scratch your head, some outrageous story. I'm sure each week we could have 50 of them if we, if we looked hard enough. We'll limit it to one. This week we've got a pretty interesting one. Then Nepalese tiger conservation doing absolutely amazing work over there. And finally an honours update. For those of you who don't know, we won't get too much into it, but I'm doing a conservation project installing camera traps in coastal dunes. And so if you want to learn too much or a bit more about the project rather on whatever platform you're listening to this on, there'll be a recap from my deployment and collection videos for the camera trapping. So learn a lot more through that, but pretty much just looking at site occupancy, installing camera traps, bait underneath, animals walk past, and then based on different landscape variables, we're trying to determine how the vegetation impacts where um, species are found. And also, before I forget, like like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on, but also head over to fairly lame underscore on TikTok and Instagram, posting four times a day on TikTok, uh, whether it's videos from out in the field when I was doing my conservation project, or it's going through the camera trap photos, seeing a lot of cute animals, ethical fashion, consumerism, sustainability tips, et al, et al, anything like that, make sure to follow along. And also recently, before we get into the first good news story, we did an interview with Edgar's Mission. If you don't know who they are, it might not be from Melbourne, they're an animal sanctuary for like injured farm animals. So if, if a farmer can't take care of an animal, doesn't have the mean to, or if someone comes across an injured animal that needs some help, they can take it to Edgar's mission and they, they just work miracles pretty much. Learned a lot about their sanctuary, um, some pretty cool things like they have a book club so you can volunteer to read books to injured animals, wholesome, just to get them used to like people because if when you're around animals, you're like, you tend to do like random shit like, you know, like fidgeting and whatnot like I am. But... Um, yeah, so it just calms them down. Anyway, lots of interesting stuff. That interview can be found on, yeah, Spotify, YouTube, and clips on TikTok too. So the first good news conservation story is the success of wildlife using highway crossing structures in Australia. And so over 4,800 species were found to use these underpasses uh, to cross the highways. And so wildlife crossing structures, just like, I guess, structures to help animals cross the roads. So break it down nice and simply if that wasn't self-explanatory. Um, but yeah, so they can come in a variety of forms, underpasses, overpasses, rope bridges, all that kind of stuff. We'll touch on it a bit later. And so of these 4,800 species, which is mind-blowing, that is a shit ton. These included dingoes, paddy melons, koalas, betongs, 
and goannas even. And so, interestingly, this report found no evidence to support the prey trap hypothesis, um, which pretty much the the thinking is that, or this hypothesis is that if these structures are built, a predator is more likely to spend time around these areas uh, to hunt prey because they know like prey is attracted to it to try to move through the landscape. And they didn't. Foxes spent a bit more time, but it wasn't anything to be concerned of. And so we'll touch on what impact does roadkill and vehicle collisions have on species. And so it varies depending on the conservation status, like on koalas, or not koalas, on kangaroos, not a massive deal, but for something like Tasmanian devils, it's huge. And it's it can also alter the demographics of a population in terms of like sex ratios, right? Because men are more likely to be moving long distances like when they're kicked out once they grow out they have to find their own home ranges and whatnot so they're, they're most likely they move further distances compared to females um for most species um which is kind of a good thing because men obviously one boy can have part can reproduce with multiple partners but then if a female dies especially if the animals or the species are endangered it can be really impactful and so like we said before, these underpasses which were used in northern New South Wales, they're just one version of uh, wildlife crossing structures. I'd say the gold standard, I don't know if it's gold standard uh, necessarily, but the most impressive structure is in Banff National Park. It's an overpass and it looks magnificent. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. It looks like they literally just put a road in and left the native vegetation on top. It looks amazing. But... The cost is between two to four million dollars, so they're really expensive to make. And you know, not to get too much into the price of building uh, underpasses, but apparently this is over ten times as much, or over seven times as much as a standard underpass. So it does depend on you know how much benefit there would be. And I don't think we've seen anything to the scale of the Banff structures in Australia, but apparently there are some in WA. Not sure how successful they are. Um, I'd say they're probably not as necessary because we don't have as many herd species. Like over there, you've got heaps of elk, moose, deer, whatever else running through. And so these allow like a lot of it. I think a lot of them are based on, um, I guess, natural migration pathways. And so they try to keep those open. But here, it's not a massive thing. Um, so I think we could probably get away with it. And also because our population is so skewed. But anyway, there's only a couple major highways. But what you do see, especially if you've driven from Sydney to Melbourne, there are a lot of rope bridges and glider poles. And so we'll try to paint a picture for the Spotify listeners. So the rope bridges you would have seen, they're just, think of like telephone poles, right? And so they could be 20 metres apart. And they look like, just like it's some army netting draped across the road pretty saggy to be honest um and so heaps of different animals use this apparently even koalas have been seen and goannas or monitors the lizards have been seen using these and sometimes they even have little bits of pvc pipe in the middle of the netting just to give the animals a bit of cover if there's any predator birds um those sorts of things around and then there's also glider poles and so these think of the rope bridges right but just cut off the netting and for the longest time, I didn't have a clue what they were for. I literally just thought they were abandoned telephone poles. But no, apparently glider species like sugar gliders, uh, greater gliders can jump between them or glide between them, even if they're over 20 metres apart. Never seen it. 
uh, with my own eyes, and I struggled to find any videos of it happening, but apparently it does, uh, so we'll take their word for it. But that's absolutely amazing to see. And one of the biggest benefits of these crossing structures is that it reconnects fra previously fragmented populations. So if you think you've got a forest, cut a hole in it, put a four-way highway, a four-lane highway straight through the middle, a lot of smaller animals aren't going to cross that massive no-man's land um, to get to the other side. So that means those populations are completely cut off from each other. And this can be bad for a variety of regions, but biggest one, arguably the biggest one, would be genetic diversity. So if they can't breed with each other, they'll just be breeding in their little clusters, lead to a lot of inbreeding, reduce genetic diversity. And so then if a disease or something comes along, it can wipe them out very, very easily. But this restores that connection to some degree. I'm not sure how effective each type of structure is. Like it says 4,800 species cross use these underpass, but I don't know how that goes for the rope bridges and glider poles. But again, very good initiative. Look like they're really cheap to install, like just like wooden poles. I mean, yeah, why not? So the second story, Rex Airlines retrofitting electric engines to their aircraft. So they're going to begin trials in 2024 to convert some of the aircraft to run on electric motors. And so apparently they're using a combination of batteries and also hydrogen, which apparently hydrogen's like God's gift to the world, but we'll touch on that a bit later. So the three benefits, they reckon, of electric aircraft is that it reduces emissions, obviously, close to zero, but it does depend on where the hydrogen is sourced and where the electricity is sourced, whether it's renewable or not. Uh, it will also lower the cost of flying, apparently 40% cheaper, they reckon, which is, that's impressive. And it makes less common routes more viable. So Rex flies to a lot of regional city, cities. And so say, for example, if you're flying from Albury to Rockhampton, I don't know if that's a flight that exists. But, you know, if you're just doing that once, two times a week, there's not that much economic incentive in it. But if it's lowering the cost to operate those flights, more likely that they will continue into the future. So we had a bit of a look to try to see how, how many or how much emissions, how much emissions, sure, is released uh, from normal fuel engines. And so this is going to be very rough. I used some calculator online and it spat out a number and articles as well. It spat out a number between 100 and 175 kilos of carbon emissions per person um, for a flight from Sydney to Melbourne, which I think is around an hour, hour long, something like that, with a total of 5.5 tonnes released per flight. And so using electric en engines, this would practically be zero, again, just depending on how they source their electricity. You would hope most of it would be renewable. I wonder if it's a possibility for these planes to have solar panels on the outside. I don't know how that goes. I do have a couple questions about it. Um, but again, run on both batteries and hydrogen. And apparently, yeah, hydrogen is the best, most common element on Earth. Um, and this combination of a battery and hydrogen means that they are lighter uh, than fully electric vehicles. But again, I don't know how this compares to fuel vehicles. Um, but yeah, weight is one of the more common questions that you get, uh, especially around four-wheel drive, potential four-wheel drive cars. Um, and in regards to safety, I put a video of this up on TikTok and someone said, there's no way in hell that I'd ever trust an electric plane. RACV, uh, an insurance company here in Australia, 
said that they're as safe as petrol, diesel, and other electric vehicles. Like, there's no worries whatsoever about safety. And obviously, the biggest question mark about any electric vehicle is the distance. Um, and so, the combination between hydrogen and battery gives them a greater range than fully electric. Um, but I don't know the capacity of these Rex airlines um, or the engines that they're using specifically. But apparently, refueling hydrogen is a liquid. It's stored as a liquid in petrol tanks, and so it's really quick, like just a couple minutes, whereas if it was an electric plane just off battery, it could take hours to recharge. But one of my biggest questions is, what happens if the plane gets struck by lightning uh, and it's run on electricity? Like, if it gets struck... You see, like, the amount of times that the lights will turn off if you're flying through a storm, I'm assuming the engines would have their own little circuit, own little system going on, but I couldn't find any information, uh, so that's a very interesting point. I'm sure that's something they've figured out, but, yeah, I don't know, something to think about. And I looked up if there's any other examples, had this been done in the past at all, and what I could find is this thing called Alice, which is the first fully electric plane, um, which had a few test runs in January this year. And so it looked interesting. Mixed, mixed reviews. So it had almost half the top speed of a Boeing 737. It only had a range of 440 nautical miles, um, but it was a smaller plane. Like it's only for 20 to 40 passengers. So nowhere near the size of a Boeing 737. But... The speed is an interesting one because I'm pretty sure that smaller planes can be pretty quick, especially compared to these big fuckers, right? But the biggest issue was range. And so if it's only going half the speed of a Boeing 737, yeah, I don't know how that's going to turn out. But again, this was just a small plane, first trial. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think Rex is going a very different direction. These were, the Alice planes were specifically electric, purpose-built, where Rex is going to retrofit old um, planes that run on jet fuel with electric engines. So who knows how that's going to go. We'll stay tuned. <laughs> we'll stay tuned. Hey, maybe we'll vlog it one day. You never know. But my what-the-fuck moment for this week, Dreamworld spending $2.7 million dollars which was meant for koala research facilities. Uh, instead, they used it to buy a new roller coaster. <laughs> and so after COVID, the theme park, they went to the Queensland government and said, look, we've lost all our overseas tourists. It doesn't make that much sense for us, for us to invest in koala research. Can we buy a new ride? And they said yes. Um, and, you know, on top of this, the government didn't include any clauses to say once... Uh, you recover from the impacts of COVID, then you have to use this $2.7 million to invest in this koala research or anything like that. They said, yep, it's your money now. Oh, you can use it for other purposes. And so they got this money for koala research, but it's been funneled into, I think it's called the steel taipan. So if you go on the steel taipan, you're killing koalas. Nah, but um, honestly, the biggest thing that threw me off, I thought dream world and movie world were the same thing. So when I first read this, I was like, why the fuck is, like, surely just stick to making movies. But apparently it's not. Apparently it's a theme park, which has a zoo element uh, as well, which, you know, has its own issues. 
Um, but yeah, so apparently about this about this research lab, apparently they were going to make something called the Dream World Future Lab, a world class research facility which will allow us to develop to deploy experts to tackle some of the biggest issues facing our native wildlife, like the threat of chlamydia on the local koala population. Um, and this was a quote from the Assistant Tourism Industry Development Minister. So quite the title. Um, but then there's a lot of speculation around the intention of the lab with a government spokesperson. I don't know if this is the same person who said that stuff, but a new government spokesperson said it was mainly a ploy to attract tourists from Asia. So when COVID happened and tourists from Asia couldn't make their way, it was pointless to have a koala research facility. And so obviously... With a lot of conservation uh, and I guess like greenwashing stuff or people like to say, okay, well, if you buy our product, we'll help, um, we'll donate some of it to conservation, stuff like that. We do need all the help we can get where we don't have enough resources, don't have enough money, but that's enough of the complaining. Um, but you do have to question the ethics of it. Uh, and in my experience, I did some work experience with a koala project up in New South Wales and so worked with a couple carers um, and researchers whatnot from the University of Australian National University sorry and so they said a couple of the koalas actually came into care because they were traumatized from like getting passed around for photos in um, sanctuaries like this from people just like taking photos and like pass around because they they half like think of people they think of anything vertical as trees and it was just really bad and these koalas were very badly shaken up from it and yeah had to go into care um i'm sure that's not all the case but yeah look we won't go too much into the ethics of zoos but interesting question is that how effective are zoos for conservation so in terms of how many people go visit a zoo they might see something like fuck that's like I remember I went to the National Zoo and Aquarium back in Canberra and you learn about this black bear or this, uh, what's that? What are those bears? Like, not honey bears. I don't know. Those bears which have like the orange and black, whatever that one is, they were telling a story about how this bear was in this cage um, in some overseas country. Again, I was young. Give me, <laughs> give me a break. But yeah, this bear, uh, the ghoul, ghoul trade or whatever it is, they saved it from this cage in this horrible horrible place and then it was put into a zoo and how many people leave that zoo um more inclined to make uh i guess a meaningful impact like how many people even donate like you might go to the zoo it might touch your heart for a bit but how many people actually take that into consideration when they buy a certain item eat something or you know those sorts of those sorts of topics but not trying to go there but finally on the what the fuck moment Apparently, there is a vaccine to vaccinate koalas, obviously vaccinate, to vaccinate koalas from chlamydia, and it only costs $2.5 million to roll out, $200,000 less than the steel taipan. So, you know, spend your money how you will, uh, Dreamworld. Thank you for coming. But another, back to the good news, back to the good news. Enough of that. Enough of that bad, uh, the bad juju. So, Nepal tiger population has more than doubled. Uh, so, now there are over 350 individuals in the wild. And interestingly, their known extent is shifting. Tigers have been seen up to 150 miles further east than their previous eastward extent, if that makes sense. And also at higher elevations too. So, up to 1.9 miles above sea level. And so, 
what what's the challenge with conserving tigers? Because in theory, they're such an iconic species. Obviously, poachers would be a big one. But you'd think funding shouldn't be an issue. Um, so how's it going? And so apparently, there's a few different aspects which need to be considered or addressed. Um, and one of the biggest ones, again, protecting them and their habitat, getting them listed, getting them protected areas, sanctuaries, whatever, um, but also reducing human-tiger conflict, which we'll touch on a bit later on, and finally promoting tiger-friendly policies. And one thing um, that... I guess is more specific to tigers than something like trying to protect bandicoots is their relationship with humans and this conflict that can be there because we've got some numbers for you guys. Not, not too exy and ozy, but we've got some. Apparently there has been dozens of attacks of people living in communities nearby to these protected areas for tigers. So again, you can assume what the public perception would be when in the three last, in the last three years, there've been 104 attacks uh, inside these protected areas with 62 people killed. Apparently, most of the attacks are from when humans fuck with them, which, you know, makes sense. Fuck with a tiger, it's probably not going to uh, respond too well. Or, interestingly, uh, younger tigers mistaking humans for prey species with only 1% and an intended kill or attack, whatever. I'm not sure how that's determined, if I'm honest with you. I'm not sure who's coming out and saying the younger tigers are mistaking prey. Maybe it's a thing like how sharks mistake surfers for seals. But again, I don't know. But that does raise the question that as this population of tigers recovers, how will this change these conflicts between people and tigers? Because you'd assume more tigers, more of a chance to run into them uh, in these wild, especially for these communities nearby and like i said before these encounters can pretty quickly change the perception of the tigers um, which apparently has already started to happen and they're being treated pretty unethically some um yeah very not good activities happening towards the tigers you would assume it comes from a place of trying to protect them trying to keep them away from their village protect their families those sorts of things um but yeah when you're living next to such a dangerous animal it does you do have to i don't know what the answer is but it does it looks like the population of these tigers so it's 350 now it could be capping out pretty soon i think they predicted around 400 just because of primarily these conflicts with people about if there's any more there's going to be so many conflicts so many people running into them and also there'll be a space space issue so as we've seen one tiger, 150 miles east of their previous eastward extent. You would assume humans have already pushed them out and probably destroyed their native habitat. And what's left, in most countries, nature reserves are the least productive areas. That's why they weren't torn down, because they didn't have the best soil, because the places that did have the best soil were the best for agriculture. So now we've got these suboptimal areas. And so the tigers are likely being pushed into these Um same with altitude too, less productive, you'd assume 1.9 miles high in Nepal. Um, and so then do these tigers have to venture out of these protected areas because they're less productive, because they're in poorer um, ecosystems, poorer areas, not as, enough, not as many resources. So they have to venture out of these areas and then that's when they're encountering people. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is. It's... 
it seems like it's going to be... Because you hear about elephants. Apparently, elephants in Sri Lanka is a big issue um, with them. They don't eat the tea leaves, but they just, like, walk through the tea fields, and apparently that's an issue. But that's an elephant. That's not a tiger coming to kill you. So, I don't know. It seems like poaching has decreased, and I think that's the biggest reason why the population has more than doubled. But... Yeah, these this conflict. I don't know what the answer is. Like, does it come to a point where tigers are overabundant? Like, there's still only four hundred of them, but is that too much? And then that causes more issues than having three hundred tigers. So definitely one to watch. But we also we have a we have a rundown now. So these are pretty much just bite sized run throughs, run downs of conservation topics. So we did one on blue carbon earlier so this one will be looking at the term uh, umbrella species so pretty much an umbrella species is a species that if you protect them you in turn protect the other species occurring in their ecosystem so when you're deciding to implement uh, conservation initiatives management frameworks anything like that because a lot of land managers and organizations have limited resources very limited resources you have to make some pretty difficult decisions and so umbrella species can help you weigh up which species may give you the most bang for buck in the sense that which species by protecting a tiger over a stick insect more other species will benefit from the tiger protection weird example but you see what i mean Umbrella species are often quite large, like grizzly bears, uh, as larger animals likely require larger areas to live in, and therefore you would expect larger areas are home to a greater variety, or maybe just more species, um, so therefore more animals are protected, rather than if you had an animal that had a smaller home range, then less species would be protected because it's a smaller area. In theory, not all, not all, um, like in a desert, I'm sure... Uh, that's not as uh, cut and dry, but um, yeah, especially where you've got a mosaic of habitat like in coastal dunes, coastal landscapes, when you've got a variety of, say you've got grassland, woodland, uh, salt marsh, mangrove forest. If you've got a large um, home range across these areas, a lot of species will be protected. But not all species are appropriate umbrella species. And even the ones that are still require appropriate frameworks planning uh, to be successful. So koalas, for example, they're kind of like the icon for endangered species here in Australia. Um, and one of the most common initiatives to help them would be to plant trees to increase food availability and habitat and those sorts of things. But one of the issues is with, is with this is that koalas only eat certain types of trees and they're very picky, but that's another another rundown for another day. But this could lead to a homogeneous forest, which could be great for koalas. Koalas could have heaps of food, but it may reduce diversity and it may actually hinder other species living in this area. So again, umbrella species, a species that if you protect them, protecting them will in turn protect a whole lot of other species in their habitat and yeah offer the most bang for buck for landowners finally a honors update and so if you haven't check out the deployment and collection recaps on youtube and spotify um, and again subscribe or follow on tiktok and instagram for the daily finds see what cute animals we're coming across and so pretty much what we're doing at the moment is coding photos which sounds complicated makes me sound smart but it's not we're pretty much just 
We've got all the camera trap photos in one folder. Folder, I don't know why I said that. And you're pretty much just dragging each image into a different folder with the species title. So it does take a lot of time. I think my longest site, I think it took four hours looking at rats. Just these same two rats. And it annoys the shit out of me. Oh, oh, my sense is some dark places. Because, so the way the cameras are set up to take three pictures uh, per trigger, right? And so it always happens. There'll be, there'll be like five pitches and then a break of two, or there'll be like four pitches and a break of two. So that's six, what, two triggers, whatever. And then it'll be five again, or it'll be four again and a break of two. And the reason that's shit is because if it was just like 9,000 straight rats, you just select all the pitches and drag them in. But now you have to select four, drag those, select two, drag those. And it doesn't sound that bad. I just love to complain. Um, but it does make it uh, all the more uh, time-consuming. And so far, some of the more interesting finds, we found two species of bandicoot, which is really exciting. The first one, the long-nosed bandicoot, and the second one is a southern brown bandicoot. And so I'm pretty sure both of these are least concern, um, but they have only been found in our high-quality site, which is Wilson's Prom, which is what we expected. On the other side, our low-quality site, uh, one thaggy, we found five dogs, six dogs, I think. All of them are native, though we have seen one feral cat, maybe three or four foxes. But yeah, they're five dogs, um, all with collars, and the one thaggy sites, beach is much more busy, and yeah, you just had dogs. Even had We even had two people come in, and I don't know, fucking weird, but... So we have these bait tubes, which are pretty much PVC pipes, which... Inside them have uh, this cardboard that's been soaked in like tuna oil, peanut butter, all this stuff. And so, real smelly, obviously dogs love that shit. And pretty much, it's held in the ground by a long stake, so possums don't steal it. But we've actually had a dog, he, he had a collar with the um, phone number of his owner, so, you know, 10k views and I'll uh, call him up. But we, we saw him <laughs> go through like fucking 10 pitches, and you just see him slowly dig, 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 dig. And then the next photo, the dog's gone and the bait's gone too. So he stole our bait. And I remember going to that site too, looked around for 10 minutes. Where the fuck's this bait tube gone? And yeah, go through the photos and a dog had stolen it. So there you go. And so we've also found two species of deer. Not sure what they are. Haven't coded them just yet. Both in Venus Bay. Um, a lot of echidna, which I love. Like the more echidna, the merrier. A lot of wombat too, which gets old. I remember my first couple sites... Saw a wombat, felt so excited, put it up on the Instagram story, and now they're just kind of a couple big sausages kicking about. But yeah, that's pretty much episode one of the Fairly Lame podcast. I'm sure we'll get much more polished as the time goes on. Um, but yeah, hopefully you enjoyed. And if you have any, if you hear about any good news conservation stories, if it's something happening at the uni you go to in your local community, uh, hit me up on Instagram. And yeah, we'll have a bit of a look. Or if you. I guess have some background knowledge, in-depth understanding of a certain topic. Yeah, reach out and we can um, have a bit of discussion of these more complicated topics. But as always, like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And again, I'll say it again, follow on Spot on TikTok and Instagram at fairly lame underscore and we'll see you next week.